Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Hey guys. Uh, just let me say again, if you are here supporting these uh, amazing families, thank you so much. I know it means a lot to them, especially if being on church on a Sunday morning is the last thing that you would normally find yourself doing, especially church in a school. It's pretty strange, right? So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. We hope that you find today interesting. Uh, at the very least, now you know what your friends get up to when they're not having brunch with you on a Sunday morning. This, this is it. Um, and as we said earlier, today is about thanking God for the miracles of these four little children and to communicate that we value, we cherish, we celebrate each one of them. We wanted to kind of mark this point in time to say that we as a community recognize that before they've had the opportunity to do anything at all, before they have contributed anything of value to society, they are and always will be little miracles made in the image of a loving God and therefore inherently, unchangeably valuable and precious and beautiful and worthy of dignity and protection and care and worthy of our love. And also just to remind us that if that is true of them, then that is true of us, isn't it? And that's a nice thing to think about. Um, so John Tyson is a pastor friend of mine who uh, lives and works in New York City. And he has just written a new book called The Intentional Father, which as you may guess from the title, uh, is, uh, has a target audience of fathers, and specifically fathers raising sons. Um, if you are a father raising a son, I recommend this. But even if you're not, if you have kind of a mentoring or parenting responsibility for any children in your life, I say this is a great book. It's full of wisdom about raising children. And in the opening part of the book, John talks about where the phrase raising a child comes from. And he explains that it comes from ancient Roman culture. And so when the Roman patriarch was presented with a new child of his, he would literally, if he wanted to keep it, raise it to the sky, kind of like Lion King-esque. And he would say, like, this, this child I'm going to bring into my family. Or, horribly and tragically, he would turn away from the child and the child would be left outside to die of exposure. Roman culture, some great stuff about it, but some really not great stuff too. But John says, this is where that phrase comes from. And he says, when we say we are raising a child, what we're actually communicating based on the history of the phrase is, I want you. I want you in my life. I'm going to take responsibility for you. I'm going to give you everything I can to help you grow up and mature into the best person you can be. And so as we've seen, a big part of the reason for today is for new parents to stand up and promise to do just that, to raise their children and say, I want you. I take responsibility for you. And there are lots of things we could talk about today about raising kids, kind of practical advice and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, this is all really important. Um, but today, I just want to focus on the power that stories have in forming us, in forming our imaginations and helping us to make sense of the world. And so how important it is to tell our kids good stories. So Jack and I are parents of two young girls. And we are constantly, in the stories that we read and the stories that we see them watching, coming up against unhelpful, maybe even harmful gender stereotypes. They're the obvious culprits. As much as I love Disney, I'm all for like a show tune. But like, 
Old Disney, like even some of new Disney, it's, it's a pretty tough watch when you've got girls. And you're like, what is this actually teaching you about yourself and the way that the world works? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, if you know him, he's got a, a really fascinating podcast called um, Revisionist History. And um, he took three episodes to look at The Little Mermaid and completely deconstructs it. And we think this is amazing. He's like, ah, actually not. Um, if this interests you in any way, I say, listen to that. You will, you will never see The Little Mermaid in the same way. But it's obviously not just kind of gender representations and stories that we should be thinking about. Um, this next slide is a picture of our friend Adam Pearson. Um, he's part of the Sutton service. He is a big advocate for diverse abilities being represented on screen. And he's been particularly active this last week because of the new Bond film. Um, and once again, like shorthand for villainy is facial disfigurement. And he's saying this kind of thing really matters. If all the stories that we tell um, with those with kind of visible differences are represented as a threat, as evil, that kind of, that forms the way that we view the world and view people with facial disfigurement. And he is someone who's lived his whole life kind of on the other side of that story. Or think about the reason that we have Black History Month here in the UK, which actually just started this week because black Britishness has been left out of our country's story. And the stories of black Britons and other uh, communities of color, British communities of color, has been left untold. And as historian David Olashogu says, if we don't know stories like the 18th century formerly enslaved author and abolitionist Alada Equiano, if we haven't been told about black Georgians and black Victorians, and we think the first black Britons arrived in Windrush in the 1960s, if we don't know about the 60s bus boycotts in Bristol, as well as those in Alabama in America, then that can change how we understand our nation's story, change how we make sense of how our nation is now. And I had an experience a few months ago that really drove home the power that stories have over us. So a little background, in the 90s, the American Psychological Association published a report that estimated that average American youth would have seen 200,000 acts of violence on TV by the time they reached 18. This is in the 90s. Yes, it's in America. I don't think the UK would be a lot different. And theologian Walter Wink points out that the problem isn't just the sheer volume of this, and that's what the APA was worried about, the volume, but actually the fact that so many of these acts of violence are presented as necessary and is even good. I mean, just think about the violence in your average superhero film. The message is always that the hero can only defeat the villain through a display of greater violent power, presenting violence and even killing as redemptive. Now, I have come to be someone who is personally convinced that the way of Jesus is the way of nonviolence, that the idea of redemptive violence is actually a harmful fiction, just a downward spiral, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, where violence begets violence and hate begets more hate. And I completely believe that the only power strong enough to break the cycle of violence is self-giving, self-sacrificing love. But I am also someone who watched a lot of TV growing up in the 80s and 90s. Um, and earlier, a few months ago, I was watching the last series of The Line of Duty. Hans, seen it? Know about it? Yeah. So Line of Duty, you have AC-12, anti-corruption, kind of police force, weeding out OCGs. Um, what does OCG even stand for? There we go. Stephen has definitely watched this. Um, and like episode five, so like Kate, like good cop, has been lured into an ambush by who we know Joe is like a bent copper. 
And she's been lured there, and she gets there, and Ryan is there. And Ryan is an undercover OCG in the police force. And they have this standoff. And you, we know at that point that Ryan has killed a whole bunch of informants, a whole bunch of police officers, and got away with it. And like he's there with a gun, and then Kate pulls out her gun. I don't know if you remember seeing this, I was watching it with Jax, and it's like super tense, it's coming to the end of the episode, and they're like, you're wondering what's gonna happen, and they both got their guns pulled, and completely involuntarily, I find myself shouting at the TV, just shoot him in the face! <laughs> just shoot him in the face! I was like, the words escaped my mouth, and I was like, what? I, I believe in non-violence, but here I was, I want Kate to shoot him in the face, because something about the myth like the fiction of redemptive violence sits deep within me and I have to work to kind of come against that. Hopefully if I'm ever in that situation, I won't want to do that, but I just goes to show the stories that we listen to, the stories that we watch have a way of forming us, of forming our imaginations, of forming how we see the world. And so I want to encourage all of us to think about the stories that we allow to shape our imaginations, the stories that we allow to shape our children's imaginations, and especially to encourage us to think about the big stories, the stories that speak to and try and make sense of the big questions of life. Questions like, how do we get here? Why are we here? What is our purpose? How do we know what good is? What are the stories that we believe that shape those things? So last year in lockdown, I read a bit, not as much as I should have. You know, everyone's like, oh, I'll read loads. Like, yeah, or oh, Netflix. But I did read some. <laughs> Um, and I read this like, really fascinating book by a Dutch historian called Rutger Bregman called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And it's a book that explores human nature, whether we are by nature good or whether we are by nature evil. And Bregman argues that depending on how we answer that question, depending on the stories that we tell about ourselves, the stories that our society tells, will lead to very different approaches in the way that we organize society and form institutions, the way we educate and raise our children. And Bregman starts the book by recounting The Lord of the Flies. I'm sure many of us had to read The Lord of the Flies when we were younger. We know the story. It's about a group of British schoolboys who crash land onto a deserted island. And by the time they're rescued a few weeks later, the island is just a smoldering wasteland Three of the children are dead. They've painted their faces. They've become savages. And the last line of the book has one of the boys, Ralph, weeping for the end of innocence and the darkness that exists within man's heart. William Goldings, who wrote that book, his understanding of human nature was that man produces evil as a bee produces honey. And that left to our own devices, we would all descend into savagery. And that idea resonated with the world at the time. It was written in the 50s, uh, a world that had just come through the Second World War, a world that was coming to terms with the atrocities of that. So much so that the Lord of the Flies would go on to sell tens of millions of copies, be translated into 30 languages, and be held as one of the classics of the 20th century, even winning a Nobel Prize. But Rutger Bregman wasn't convinced that this told the whole story about the human condition. And he actually set out to find if anyone had actually done a study on children who had been deserted and left to themselves. And after months of searching through newspaper archives, he found the true life story of six boys from Tonga who in 1966 had been rescued by an Australian captain after being marooned on the island of Atta for more than a year. They were there for 15 months. 
And these boys ranged in age from 16 to 13. They were all pupils at a strict Catholic boarding school and just kind of wanted more adventure in their life. So they decided, let's steal a boat. And I love this, their plan was to sail to Fiji 500 miles away. It's like, yeah, I'm sure we can do that. And so they, they managed to steal the boat unnoticed. They get out and then the first almost fatal area, they fell asleep. And they wake up a few hours later in the middle of a storm. And the first thing they do is, oh, let's get out of this. They hoist the sail, the sail gets ripped to shreds. The next thing that goes is the rudder, and they are left just floating for eight days. And all they can do is collect rainwater in coconut shells, and they're left floating. But actually, the first thing they do is kind of organize themselves, and they have a sip each in the morning and a sip each in the evening. And they get through these eight days, and they find the island of Atta, and they shipwreck onto that. And right from the get-go, they organize themselves into teams of two, uh, they drew up a strict rotor for all the chores that needed doing. They created this commune, a vegetable garden. Um, they hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater. They even made a gym with like homemade weights from the island. All of this from just one knife blade and a whole lot of determination. Every day began with a song and a prayer, and it ended with a song and a prayer. And whenever two of them quarreled, the rest of them would send them to each end of the island to calm down. Then they bring them together and make sure that they reconciled. And so when they were rescued 15 months later, the local doctor who inspected them was absolutely amazed at how healthy and strong and muscular they were. And whilst you may have thought they would be completely sick of the sight of each other after spending all this time, the Australian captain who rescued them then employed them on his boat. They still wanted an adventure, and they spent the next decade sailing around fishing with him. This next slide shows Peter, who was the captain, and Mano, who was one of the boys, still firm friends decades later. And Bregman links these two stories of children surviving on a desert island, one fictional, one true, to two competing philosophies of human nature. On the one hand, Bregman argues, we have the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, who says, because our natural state is selfish, untrustworthy, dangerous, we must therefore be controlled by a strong state, by firm leadership that constrains our capacity to harm one another. Then on the other side, we have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who just from looking at him, he looks, he looks friendly, right? You can almost see like where they're going by the looks of their faces. Human nature bad, human nature good. He says that man was born free, and actually it's civilization with its coercive power, social classes, restrictive laws that puts him in chains. Man is naturally good, he wrote, and it's from these institutions alone that men have become wicked. So these are the two extremes of the human nature argument. That we are at heart evil and must be constrained versus we are at heart good and must be kept from being corrupted. And in humankind, Bregman argues that whilst it appears from looking at most of the dominant stories in Western culture and the way that we organize society, that Hobbes' view has won out. But he thinks there is more evidence for Rousseau's view than we might think. And the interesting thing, maybe not surprising because he's a historian, is that his book is just full of story after story. Stories that we don't know that kind of share this view. Stories that we have known but are being re retold. I don't know if you're aware of the famous Stanford prison experiment um, where... Uh, they, they put uh, people in groups of guards and students and like, they're amazed at how quickly it descended into savagery. Actually, what happened is they wanted the experiment to go a certain way, and so the guy who was leading it coached them all the way through. And you see like, these stories that we think shows human, um, uh, the state of the human heart in a certain light might not be exactly how we think they are. 
Now, if I asked you which side of the human nature argument you fell on, which end of the spectrum between mostly bad or mostly good you lean towards, I wonder what you would say. I wonder how you would explain both the presence of good and evil, not just in the world, but also within us. And what stories would you point to? What stories would you tell to back that up? Now, if you ask me, which I appreciate you haven't, but I'm going to answer anyway, I would maybe somewhat unsurprisingly, as a pastor within the Christian faith, point you to the Bible to explain human nature. And the Bible is actually a collection of stories that tells one unified story that ends up culminating in the person of Jesus. And it is within these stories that billions of people all over the world, many of us sitting in this room, have found makes the most sense of ourselves and the world that we find ourselves in. In the first book, right there at the beginning, we have the creation account in the book of Genesis. And there we are told the big story of a loving God who makes humankind in his own image. With all the potential for love and goodness and creativity, the ability to make order out of chaos that being a divine image bearer entails. But then we are also told that humanity falls. That humanity is assailed by the great lie. The great lie that God doesn't actually really love us doesn't want what is best for us. And so we become convinced that our hearts are the best guide to determine good and evil, and we are better off on our own. And in the story of Genesis, it is the fall that births in humanity, not just we have the potential for good, but then the potential for great evil, for selfishness, for violence, for greed, for hate. Now, it may be that you understand this story to be a historical account of the first humans, or you may understand it to be mythology, a subversive counter-story to the ancient creation myths that existed, or maybe something else entirely. But as John Mark Homer, uh, another preacher that I really love, in his new book, Live No Lies, says, he says, those are questions about a genre of literature, not about whether or not we can trust Genesis as scripture. Whatever interpretation is right, the garden story is true. For millennia, billions of people have found it to be the truest and most insightful treatise, the most insightful story of the human condition in the history of the world. You see, the story of Genesis is a story of all of us being created out of love, but born into the middle of, as it were, a war, a war between good and evil, and a war that doesn't just exist out there where it's easy to have good people and bad people, but exists within here, within our own hearts, where we see good and evil at war there too. And so the Christian answer to Bregman's question about the human condition, is it mostly good or mostly evil, would say, well, it's both. There's both that exist within us. In us is the potential for great good, but also great evil, great expressions of love, but also cruelty and hatred. And the underlying narrative that runs through the rest of the Bible is God's ongoing attempt to rescue us and restore us to the way that we were created to be. To nurture the good in us. And not just to constrain the bad, but to free us from it. And as you may know, the defining story of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is the Exodus. You know, this is like Prince of Egypt. This is God rescuing his people from Egypt through the ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, leading them into the Promised Land. And this story, which is a story of a God of love, 
rescuing his people that they might live with him and become like him became for the Jewish people the defining narrative that explained everything. According to the author John Steinbeck, no story has power nor will it last unless we feel in ourselves that it is true and true of us. And this is a story that has lasted, lasted for thousands of years. And for the Jewish people, the Exodus isn't just a story from their past that they know about. It's actually a story that they inhabit. Even now, thousands of years later, every year at Passover, when the Jewish community sets aside time to intensely remember and retell the story, they say this. They say, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there, became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs of wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you notice all of the personal pronouns in there? How much they identify with this story, see it as their own, my father. We were made to suffer. We cried out. The Lord rescued us, heard our voice, brought us out. And one of the most beautiful parts of the Passover meal is that in the middle of it, it is the youngest child who is brought forward and coached into asking the question that elicits the retelling of the story. Baked into their retelling is this passing on of the story from one generation to the next. So that this too would be the story that shaped their children's imagination, would help their children answer the big questions about God and themselves and their purpose in life. Who is God, the story says? Well, he's the one who made us, the one who loves us, and because of his love for us, he heard our cries and he rescued us. Who are we? We are a people dearly loved by God, but also a people in need of rescuing. And what is our purpose in life to live with God and to become like him? And as beautiful and as true as that is, as the first followers of Jesus went on to explain, instead of just pointing backwards, the Exodus story was also to point forward to another event that was to come, another intervention by God. When, as the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John puts it, the God who created the universe became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And instead of receiving him, the world nailed him to a tree. But it was on the tree, at the story's darkest point, that God was once again battling the forces of darkness and evil. It was on the cross that he once again brought about the rescue of his people. Because though he was killed, he did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day, defeating evil and death forever and leading his people into a freedom where they could be with him and be like him. You see, the story of the cross is the story of the Exodus retold, but with added detail. As the writer of the, the book of Hebrews says, actually everything that came before, including the Exodus, is just a shadow. But we find the substance in the person and the work and the story of Jesus. It is through the story of Jesus that we come to know most clearly who God is. Who is God? Well, Jesus tells us that he is a God of love. A God that created us, that made us, that delights in us. 
A God who says, I raise you up. I am your father. I want you. I take responsibility for you. I want you to be with me. I want to lead you into all freedom. And we see in the cross a God who was willing to make that happen by the greatest of sacrifices. A God who was willing to suffer alongside us, to step down into our darkness, to be with us and to die for us. And we see in the story of the cross that the story of the cross isn't just a story for the Israelites, although it started there, it's a story for all of us. That this is a God that loves each one of us. And this is a story that says who we are. Who are we? Like I said, we are loved. We are created. We are intended. We are wanted. And let that sink in. You are loved and you are wanted. And yet, we are also in need of rescue. I mean, I know I look within my own heart. I can watch Line of Duty and shout, shoot him in the face. And there's something in there that isn't quite right. And that's a trivial example. But I, I mean, we could chat and I could tell you lots of examples in my own life. Like, I am not the person that I want to be. There's, there's a vision of me that is here and I am not that. And often I just don't know how to get there. I am in need of rescue personally. And then I look around at the world and I think, Jesus, what is going on? I mean, this is a crazy time to be alive, isn't it? Like we thought everything was fine and then everything has gone crazy in the last, oh, I don't know how many years, for us in the West. Like it's probably always been crazy everywhere. But we're like, man, what is going on? Like we're in an ecological disaster, thinking of raising our kids. What, what are we doing for them? How are we passing this on to the next generation? We're still in the midst of a pandemic. Like fuel has gone through the roof. We've run out of petrol. Like we look at the world and there's that and then we see war and we see evil and we see things like Sarah Everard and we're like, what, what is going on? How do we live in a city like this? And we see a problem. And who are we? We're a people in need of rescue. We're a world in need of rescue. And the story of the cross is that Jesus came to rescue us. Came to give us a purpose. And our purpose is to live with him. We get to be with him now. The story of the Bible is that there's a God who loves us and wants relationship with us. Who wants to know us, to walk alongside us. And also that says, you too can be like me. That's what Jesus said when he was calling his disciples to him. That's like the message under that is, you can do what I do, you can be like I am. And so that's the message of the cross. We too can be like Jesus. That we can be rescued from this stuff inside of us. That we can be freed. And we see that Exodus was freedom from kind of external stuff. And the cross, yes, I believe it is that, but it's also freedom from internal stuff as well. Compulsions that we feel like we've got no control over, addictions, ways of thinking, ways of being. And Jesus says, I've come to rescue you. There is freedom here. This is the story that we live in. And to quote Steinbeck again, it is a story that has power because we feel that it is true for us. At least I know that I do. I know people in the room do. They feel that this story, it explains things in a way that no other kind of worldview and story does. How we got to where we are, where we could be going, how we sort things out. The story of Jesus explains it. And it's a story that we have decided to step into, to treat as our own. And by doing that, we have found incredible hope that this isn't as things have to be. Things can be different. Things will be different. We found 
life. We found wisdom. We found courage. We found comfort. We've even found power to change. Good stories have an ability to transform us. And I would say this, this is the best of stories. The best of stories. And so parents, parents who dedicate their little ones, other parents in the room, I'd encourage you to again, tell your children good stories. Find good stories out there to tell them, but also tell them this story. It's why we ask our parents to promise to do that. Because we as a community have said, this is such a powerful story, we want to pass it on. And yes, our kids will get to decide whether they want to live into that story. Completely. We want them to choose that or not. But we want to tell them at least that they know, at least they're growing up knowing that this is the narrative that we have given our lives to live into. And I guess my encouragement for all of us is for those of you who know the story, remind yourself of, of it often. I mean, that's part of the reason we meet each week. The world tells us a different story. We hear different stories the whole time about who we are, about what the good life is, about how to get ahead, what right and wrong is. And yet we come together once a week to sing songs about it and to hear it spoken again. This is the story that we believe in. This is the story that we want to live to. And so I, just my encouragement to you today is let's remember the story. Let's tell the story to our kids and let's tell the story to one another. Not just in our words, but in the way that we live. Let's live as if it is true. And maybe you are here this morning and you're thinking, I've, I've never heard this story before, really. And if that is true, then we would love to help share the story with you. As we've said, we have Alpha that is happening. Alpha is an amazing way to explore the story of Jesus. And so if you'd like to do that, it's on Zoom. Um, you can like, access it from anywhere, find out from our website. We would love to talk to you about the story. And it also may be that you're here this morning and you're just thinking, I don't know if my story is working for me. I was in counseling a few years ago and I was really stuck up on like, what is the right thing and like, the wrong thing to do? How am I supposed to live? Should I do this? Should I do that? And I had like, all these kind of frameworks and rules. And my counselor just said to me, let's like, move on for a second. Not that it's not important, but move on for a second for what is right and wrong. And just maybe think about what is working. Does this story that you're telling about yourself, is that working for you? And I realized that actually, no, it really wasn't. So like, maybe just try this other story on for size. And so that's my encouragement to you this morning. If your story isn't working for you, if it's not leading you, forming you into the person that you want to become, maybe try another story for a bit. I'd say I've got a good one. <laughs> I think the Bible's got a great story. The person of Jesus is the defining story for me. And again, we'd love to introduce you to that. So that is my encouragement today. We get to talk about kids. Tell good stories and tell the best stories. Band, why don't we come up? One of the reasons that we sing is to retell this story. We, we sing about this story. It's a way of getting it into us, a way of connecting with it on an emotional level. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to sing some more stories about the love of God for us. And so just encourage you, if you want to, you can stand, you can sing, as Jack said before. If you just want to sit and reflect and hear, or do you know what? I know there are lots of you, like being in church. I mean, that's, that's like, it's a long thing, right? I've talked for a long time. If you just want to, like, go to the toilet and not come back, that's time, fine too. 
But like we're going to stay here and we're going to worship. Just encourage you to stand and I'm going to pray for us as we do. Jesus, I thank you for the story that you have told over us. The story that your life, your death, your resurrection tells that we are loved and wanted. That you came to rescue us, not just from the stuff out there, but the stuff in here. You came to show us that there is a life available with you. A life available where we become more like you. And I pray for us, for those of us who are parents or who have kind of responsibilities for raising kids. I pray you'd help us to tell them good stories, stories that resonate with that story. That they too would grow up knowing that they are loved and wanted. That they too can become like you. And I pray just as we sing these stories again today, that you'd remind us of this, that it would once again have power to form us and that we would, knowing this story, live in this world in the best possible way. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.